Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your presence here with us today. We thank you, Lord, that you purpose this day, this moment, before the foundation of the world. And that each and every person that you determined to be here is here. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified today as we look into your word. Lord, that you would be made much of in our hearts, that you would do a work in our hearts by your spirit. Lord, that you would help me to stand and help me to speak and help me to faithfully declare the truth. Lord, we thank you that your word is truth. Lord Jesus, you are truth. We commit this time to you, Lord, and praying that you would be glorified in all ways, that you'd have your way in us and through us, <clears throat> that we'd be changed as a result, Lord, of hearing and meditating and considering your word today. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to introduce you to somebody called Stella. I can't literally introduce her because she's not here, but imagine that she, she was here. Stella is uh, 25 years old, and from as, as long as she can remember, she's wanted to be an actress. Um, she's desired to be uh, an actress. Her mum was an actress, and she's grown up wanting to, to be an actress. Um, but she's quite shy, and she has a real um, issue with trust, particularly trust in men. Because the men in her life have, been, um, have betrayed her trust, have, have let her down, have disappointed her. But anyway, she gets to a point where she builds up, uh, plucks up the courage to, to join this acting class. And she's really excited, actually really excited about it. As much as she's been nervous, she's really excited about it. But then she realizes actually that the first class, she looks on the, the itinerary and she realizes the first class is a trust-building exercise. You know that, the, the one where you have to stand and, and fall back into someone's arms? So that was the first exercise, and she's paired up with this guy called Jeremy, um, who in her mind, she thinks he looks a bit like Mr. Bean, not, a, not really a kind of a, a, a big, strong character. So that's even, you know, causing her to be even more concerned that she's potentially got to fall into this guy's arms, and he can't, he can't, he's not going to be able to hold her. Um, and he says to her, look, in all, you know, the rules of this game, you have to say that you, you trust me to do this. And she's like, well, I, but I don't trust you. He's saying, he's saying, look, just for the purpose of the game, you, just, you need to say that you trust me. And so she says, okay, I trust you. And she kind of stands and, and she kind of half falls up, but she doesn't really fall back. And it takes you know, a few times before she finally gets enough trust to actually fall back. And lo and behold, she hits the floor. No, no, lo and, lo and behold. <laughs> no, lo, lo and behold, he catches her. And she's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I can't, can't believe it. And then she wants to keep doing it then. She wants to keep, keep doing it. And she turns around and she starts, tries to, to fall forward. And he's, he's stopping and saying, no, no, no. That's, that was stage one. Now we need to do stage two. So you stand there in front of me. And she stands in front of, front of him, ready to drop forward. And he says, right, now drop backwards. And she's like, I can't, I can't do that. Because in her mind, she knows that he's standing in front of her. How is he going to catch her if he's in front of her? And she refuses to continue the exercise and she goes home and, and she's unable to get past that point of trusting. And I think a lot of us can be like that in our, in our faith with our regards to, to Christ. As long as things, we can see that, we find ourselves in situations where we can see, okay, I can see that Jesus has got this. I can see that God can handle this. I can trust him. But then there's other, other situations where we find ourselves in where actually we can't work out how it's going to happen. So therefore we are unable or we find, ourselves, find it difficult to trust. We're going to go to the Bible Texas, even as we, we've, we've heard it, we're going to look at that uh, in a moment. And we're going to see a situation that required a lot of trust. And one who proves that he's totally deserving of complete trust. So here in uh, 
It'll be all right. Fantastic. So we're here in uh, John chapter 18. And we're, going, we're approaching the climax of Jesus' life on earth. His whole life on earth has been focused and geared up to this moment, to what's shortly going to take place, which is the cross. Jesus truly was born to die. I want us to make some observations about Jesus here in this chapter and realize that, obviously, for the, we've got four different Gospels, don't we? And they're all, all with a different slant, telling of the same situations, the same, the same um, instances, but with, with a slightly different uh, angle. Presenting, um, each author is presenting d- different aspects of Jesus' character. In some sense, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king. Mark is presenting Jesus as the servant. These are kind of in simplified terms. Uh, Luke uh, as a perfect man. And John very clearly, very clearly is making, is wanting us to understand right from the gate, throughout, throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus is no ordinary man, but that he's actually God. Right from the gate, we see in chapter... One, John declares that Jesus is God manifested in human form. Hence the title for our series, Superman HD. That is human and divine. It's key for us to remember that, as I said, all throughout John's gospel, his purpose is to reveal Jesus as the Son of God. And that, that, that remains the same even for this text here today. Now you might be familiar with the story about Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if I asked you to, summon, you know, to tell me some of the standout events, you might mention... Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. Even if you're not a Christian, most people know about Judas, don't they? The Judas kiss. Or Jesus sweating drops of blood. Or Jesus asking the Father to take away the cup of suffering. Or Jesus saying, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. John doesn't mention any of these things. Not because they didn't really happen or because he he saw things differently, but because inspired by the Holy Spirit, his purpose for writing, as I said, was, was different. John wants us to see that Jesus, far from being a helpless victim in the midst of events way beyond his control, is actually in complete control of all that happens. Now let's get into this amazing narrative that is, we're going to see that it's rich with symbolism and packed with encouragement for us. Hopefully you've come to be encouraged today. I, 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 I sense that that's what the Lord wants to do, to, is to, to encourage us through his word, as always. So in chapters uh, 13 through to 17, Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples sharing the Last Supper. He's washed their feet, literally. Here's Jesus, the servant king, and he's washed his disciples' feet. He's been preparing them and praying for them, preparing them for his departure, saying that the whole, he's, he's going to go, but actually he's going to send the comforter. You remember that? He's going to send the Holy Spirit and praying that the Father would take care of them when he's gone. Here in chapters 18 to 21 is the account of his arrest, death, and resurrection. And in verses 1 to 4, we see that Jesus is the ultimate hero. Verses 1 to 4, Jesus is the ultimate hero. So our first verse. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, that these words here is referring back to all that's been taking place in, and he's been saying it in uh, chapter 13 through to 17, including his amazing prayer. You remember that? Pastor Rob dealt with that last week, in which he asked the Father to glorify him in order that he would glorify the Father. Now, we know, don't we, from, the, from Scripture, particularly in John as well, that the way that Jesus is going to glorify the Father ultimately is by going to the cross. 
by dying a brutal death. John, back in chapter 3, told us that the way that the Father loved the world was by sending his Son to die so that all who trust in Jesus will be saved. And Jesus makes it crystal clear in chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, that he wasn't just sent against his will. So it wasn't just a case of the Father saying, right, you're going to go and you've got no, you, you, have no, you have no option. But he was a willing servant. He was willing to go. Think about it, 33 years on earth, Jesus lived a sinless life, resisting temptation day in, day out. What would it be like just for you just to resist temptation for half an hour? Not to sin for half an hour, not to have a sinful thought. And Jesus, for 33 years, resisted temptation. Every plan and scheme of the devil to destroy him. His whole life, he lived on earth knowing what was coming, what that, that day eventually was going to, what was ahead, ahead of him, what his mission was knowing that the day was coming when he was going to experience, experience excruciating pain, both physical and emotional. He was going to have to face the humiliation of being spat on, beaten, whipped in public, humiliate, humiliated, treated like a common criminal, when actually he was completely innocent. It's one thing being treated like a criminal if you're, you are a criminal, but he was completely innocent. And all of this, by the, check it, all of this by the hands of the people who he made. On the cross, Jesus was going to, for the first time also in all of eternity, experience a separation from his father. That's pain on the next level that we can't even begin to understand. Never before had he been separated from the father. Jesus knew that all this unimaginable pain and suffering was waiting for him on the road that he had chosen to walk. And yet his face was fixed like flint. He was determined. He's a true hero. He was running towards the battlefield and instead of running away from it. I've noticed definitely in my own life, particularly when there's a scary event coming up that I know about, that I'm, that I'm so whenever I'm preaching or whenever, um, whatever it is, I've got something, something ahead that, that, that I'm kind of maybe not necessarily looking forward to or I'm, or I'm fearful about. The closer it gets to it, the more, the more the temptation is actually for me to run or to make an excuse to, to not actually have to face that thing. So the fact that he's here right at the end of his life, still determined, he's a true hero. He's the ultimate hero. Notice that John says that they crossed the Kidron Valley. Or your, or your Bible might say Brook Kidron. It's the same thing. Remember that John wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so no words are just in there just for the sake of being in there. If, we, if, we, if he's mentioned the place, it's for, for a reason. He wants us to make note of it. So I've got a picture here. I don't know if you can really see that. Probably not. But you see the big square piece in the middle. So this is Jerusalem, and the big square piece in the middle is the temple. And then to the right of it, you see where it says Kidron Valley. So you've got the Kidron Valley there, and then to, just to the right of that at the top, next to the L's, you can see a little box, and that's Gethsemane, that's the garden. And then to the right of that, obviously, the, the Mount of Olives. Can you see that? Yeah? So you've got the temple... And actually, there's three valleys. There's the Hinnom Valley, and there's another one going through the middle, and then, then you've got the, the Kidron Valley. Like a, like a ravine, like a, maybe a gully that you'd see. In Jamaica, they call it a gully, isn't it? Slightly bigger than a gully, maybe. So let me remind you that Jesus and his, and his disciples have just shared the Passover meal together because it's Passover season. <clears throat> sorry, I, I missed that, missed the section there, sorry. 
So the Kidron Valley, as you can see here, it ran outside the city of Jerusalem and lay between the city and Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives. You can see that. And most of the time it was dry, but particularly during Passover season, when, it, when, when there, there were rains, they'd, 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 then be, it would then become a brook. You'd have water running through it because of the rain. I think, now consider, consider what's happening here, happening here. So Jesus is now about to cross with his disciples across uh, this valley. And at that time of the year, as I said, uh, I said that there, there would be tens of thousands, literally, people coming to Jerusalem um, with their, their lambs uh, for sacrifice. You've got the Jewish historian Josephus who records that at this particular Passover, there were some, it were counted 256,000, that's a quarter of a million sheep that were counted and slaughtered. That's a whole heap of blood. A whole heap of blood. And on, on this altar, at the bottom of the altar, you had a drain away. And you're thinking, okay, where's all this blood going to go? There's a lot of, lot of blood spread, spread all over the place. What happened to all that blood? I hear you ask. At least one of you over there was asking it. Well, the Jews had a plan, or so should I say, the father had a, had a plan back in Leviticus. So they were told to, to um, drain, have drainage at the bottom of the, the altar. And then from that, that, there was then like um, a funnel or, 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 or a, a channel that went from the temple. Actually, there's a, a little diagram of it here. Out through this tunnel, down into the Kidron Valley. So imagine at this time of the year, Jesus, check the scene. Jesus is now crossing over the Kidron Valley, which would have been blood red, blood everywhere. So here is the one that every single drop of blood for the sacrifices, because of the Passover, pointed to Jesus, didn't it? The whole point that there was a Passover was it was all point. It was God's picture pointing forward to the one actually one day who was going to come and shed His blood. And now, just as Jesus is about to go into the garden, moving on now to be sacrificed, He's crossing over. Uh, this valley and where, where there's blood everywhere. The symbolism is rich. Not only that, but this Kidron Valley was historically the place where false idols also, there were different times where there were false idols taken from the temple. God had men come in and clear, clear out the temple, take those false idols and burn them in the Kidron Valley. So blood and false idols representing rebellion and sin. And here now is Jesus with his disciples crossing over and yet there's more, because some couple of centuries uh, before that, King David, in Second Samuel um, 15, 23, he had to flee Jerusalem because of his son Absalom, mutiny, who turned against him and rejected him. And the people, he turned the people, it says that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And now, so David now, who was the king, God's king, had to now flee Jerusalem. And what did he cross? He had to cross the Kidron Valley. And so pointing forward to Jesus who would come, who was God's real chosen king, also now being rejected. And these, these little, little things you just realize, actually God is, I, I was saying to somebody, somebody that I think when we're actually with the Lord in, in, in eternity, I, th- I think we're going to look back and he's going to be able to show us all, all these things that, that, that just the way that he was speaking so very, very clearly that we miss now. There's some things we can pick up now, but just how, how God, God speaks so very clearly to help us understand that he's real and that he's, he's in charge. So on the side of the Mount of Olives were gardens where the rich, the, the more well-off, uh, would go to escape the heat of the day. I think I've got a picture here. This is a, that actually is, is 
and the Mount of Olives and it's Gethsemane. You've got that, that, you see the church building there. It's the All Nations Church, which is built just to the right of the, the Garden of Gethsemane. So this would be looking from the temple side uh, over. And then you notice it's, we're kind of looking down. So from the garden, you would have looked up and you would have been able to see the temple, which is at, at, at the highest, highest point. This is a tree in the garden, olive tree. Obviously, it's called the Mount of Olives for a reason. Um, some of the trees in there apparently are, are dated up to like 900 years old. 900 years old, old trees. And um, this tree, actually, is the oldest olive tree in the world. Who wants to guess how, how old they think that is? Shout out. No. <laughs> Linda wasn't listening, clearly. Uh, how, how many? Mm-mm. Older. Between three and a half thousand and five thousand years old. And it's, and it's still producing olives. Apparently, but at least at the time they wrote this, it was. It doesn't really have any relevance to what we're saying, but it's, it's <laughs> part of the fact is it's an olive tree. Um, so Gethsemane means oil press. As it was a place where olives grew and then they were picked and then you'd, you'd have, a, have a press and the, and, and the press was it. The, the oil was literally crushed out of the olives. And then you get the, the symbolism with Jesus too being crushed under the weight of the emotional stress that was coming to him. And Luke records Jesus' sweat becoming like drops of blood. Pastor Rob reminded us that there are two Adams. We've got the first Adam in the first garden, Eden, who rebelled against the Father's will. Whereas Jesus, the second Adam, in Gethsemane, was obedient to the Father. Adam hides in the first garden whereas Jesus is completely transparent and open before the Father. In Eden, Adam was driven out of God because of sin. But in Gethsemane, Jesus comes to die for sin. In Eden, a flaming sword, you remember, was drawn by God to keep man away from Gethsemane. Keep man away. But in Gethsemane, a sword was drawn by a man. We'll go on to see that in a little while, but then put away by God. So let's read, let's read verses uh, 2 to 4 for more evidence of Jesus being the ultimate hero. So read with me. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Notice that Judas is no longer with Jesus and the real disciples. I call them that because here at the end now, Judas has proved himself. He's been identified as a betrayer. And if you remember from the other accounts, um, after the Passover meal, John asked, John asked, well, during the Passover meal, John asked, him, asked Jesus, who is it who's going to betray you? He said, the one I, I, I dipped in the, the sock with. And it ends up being Judas. Then Judas leaves, doesn't he? Jesus says, what are you going to do? Go and do it quickly. And what he was referring to, the fact that he's going to go now and betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He was going to sell him out, which I think is worth something like $20 or something ridiculous like that. He'd sell him down a river. So after three years of listening to Jesus teach like no, imagine sitting there listening to the teachings of Jesus, face to face with him, going places with him, seeing him perform miracles that you've never seen anybody else perform before experiencing the love from him, 
even to the point where he was, you know, hours before this event, washing G- Judas's. I mean, what must that have been going on in Judas's heart? Washed, where G- he's looking into Jesus' eyes and Jesus is washing his feet. And Judas knows that he's going to go and betray him. We know that Satan, Satan entered Judas, didn't he? The worst kind of betrayal, the vilest act of betrayal. I don't know, have you been betrayed before? You know what it's like to be, to have somebody turn their back on you? You've been betrayed by somebody close to you, somebody you treated like family, or maybe it was even family. It hurts. It's painful. The more so, the closer the person is to you, the more painful it can be. You know something of the painful bite of betrayal. Our real focus at this point is on Jesus being the ultimate hero. And and that's seen here again in the fact that Jesus goes to the place that he always went to with his disciples. He breaks the the rule that you're watching the film and, you know, someone from the inside, one of your your guys has has betrayed you. He knows your movements. He knows your bank account. He knows knows what you do. The last thing you're going to do, knowing he's coming for you, is actually go to the place that you normally go to. You're going to break away from, from protocol, but not Jesus. He shows his heroism in the, in the fact that he's, like I said, his face is, is fixed like thin. He's going, knowing what's about to happen, knowing that making himself available for Judas. It's interesting because whenever I, I used to think about uh, this scene, I'd, this scene, I'd imagine Judas and around 20 or so temple guards, which, which would be scary enough. I did a job recently for, um, I put in a kind of, hire out uh, AV equipment and did a job for a Hasidic Jew in um, Stamford Hill. And there was, a, there was a massive hall filled with Hasidic Jews and they had the big, I forgot the name of the hats, big hats, apparently made, made of cat's fur, which is a bit scary. Cat's fur, these, these hats. But it's actually, it was interesting because it, it was, they were nice people, but it was actually, I found it quite intimidating being just their presence, they're quite kind of stern-faced and with, 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 with the hats and everything. And I was imagining well, what it would have been like standing before the Pharisees, maybe. It would have been a bit scary. But this, this term here where it says band of men, do you know what it's actually speaking of a, 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 a Roman cohort, which I think in, in the American Standard it mentions it as a Roman cohort, which is one-tenth of a legion. A legion is 6,000. So we're talking potentially, here were 600 Roman soldiers, as well as the Jewish officials. 600. Can you imagine what a terrifying sight that would be? Imagine you being one of the disciples there. You're thinking it's over. I remember coming at my house one night and there was armed police with the, the little... Living New Cross, so it's part of living the New Cross, I suppose. <laughs> just, just another day in, in the hood or whatever. Uh, Armed police with the, you know, the, the, dot, the dot sites. And there was only about 10 of them. I was terrified. I wasn't going nowhere out there. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to put my hands up or anything like that. I wanted to be indoors, away, so that they couldn't see me. That was scary. I can't imagine what it would have been like facing this group coming towards the garden. And they clearly came expecting a fight, didn't they? Because they're armed to the teeth. This didn't look good, did it, for Jesus and his disciples? But Jesus, the ultimate hero, makes the first move. Did you see that in verse 4? He speaks first by asking, and remember, John is wanting to promote not the suffering aspect of Jesus in the garden, but Jesus is God, the one who's in control. 
asking, who do you seek? So Jesus steps forward now and asks, who do you seek? And it's easy to overlook, as I said, that how terrifying this sight would have been just of this huge group of men. When we're talking about trained Roman soldiers, they know how to have a, have a, have a, have a just one of them alone would have been scary enough. But Jesus, undeterred, steps forward now and says, who is it you're looking for? The disciples must have been terrified, but at the same time also must have been in awe of Jesus, isn't it? Because here they are standing with Jesus and they're seeing Jesus, the boldness of, uh, that Jesus has. What a leader. He's the ultimate hero. He knows exactly why they've come, doesn't he? And who they're looking for. This brings us to our next observation and that is that Jesus, as I mentioned, is in ultimate control. Far from being a helpless victim, he's in charge. He's seen this moment from before the foundation of the world and he's been consciously and willingly moving towards this point and divinely with the Father orchestrating all these events at hand. There's a film which was one of my top five movies, but then I became a Christian and I dropped it out of the top five only because as I went back to watch it one time again, this film's amazing. And the swearing in it, left, right and centre, it was just like, it's still, the storyline is still banging. But I'm not encouraging you to go and go. I'm not promoting it, but I'm just, I'm just using it for, for the purpose of, of this. And the, the film is The Usual Suspects, classic, cult classic. And it's an amazing film. I'm going to tell you the, what, what happens in it because I'm not encouraging you to go and see it anyway. It, it, you might have seen it already. But basically, you kind of, you, I think the film starts off with this. You've got this guy who's been arrested by the police. And he's a, a very weak-looking character. He actually ha- has, has a limp. Um, and he's telling the story of what this, this situation that's happened. He's talking about this guy called Kaiser Sose and how horrific and terrifying he is. And he's telling about all these different things that this guy has done. And, and the, the whole time you're watching the film and you're thinking, wow, this guy is, he, he's, a, he's a victim. He's, he's a weak victim. And it's not until you get to the end, just this, this amazing twist in it, and you realize, no, actually, this guy all along, he's been in complete control. He's been orchestrating all of the moves and the counter moves. He's taken all that into account. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit like what we see here with Jesus. Although Jesus is perfect and he's sinless. Orchestrating all the events, in control. How is it that Jesus, being a man, can be in complete control? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Did you, do you guys see this? I'm going to come back. I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, be quiet, well, I am he, Judas, <laughs> sorry, so wasn't it you? Oh, sorry, whoever it was. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am he, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. That's a, just a little, little side note there that John puts in, Judas was standing with them. Deep. This is not, he didn't accidentally fall into this situation. Judas had plenty of time to, to, to duck out, to head out. He was clearly on their side against Jesus. Oh, how his heart had darkened. Seven times already in John, Jesus has said, I am, each time claiming to be divine. So when Moses met with God back in Exodus in the wilderness, he revealed himself as, I am that I am. Declaring himself as the all-sufficient God the one who is self-existent, that is the creator and sustainer of all things. What a claim Jesus is making here, even at this last point here. 
And check the irony with these soldiers, which they clearly didn't get. These puny little bunch of men, as much as they're horrific and terrifying in man's eyes, compared to Jesus, they're puny. This little bunch of men have come to arrest the one who created them. Not only the one who created them, but the one in that very moment was sustaining their life. The foolishness of it. Look at the response of these men. Judas and the Pharisees and hundreds of battle-hardened elite Roman soldiers. Verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine the sound and the sight of these battle-hardened soldiers, over 600 of them, falling to the ground? Why? Simply because Jesus has said, I am he. Now, some commentators have said, oh, that, you know, maybe it was that they kind of got startled and, and tripped over. These are Roman soldiers. They're, they're used to being in battle. Come on now, don't be silly. What we're seeing here is a response to Jesus' divine revelation. The reality is, if Jesus really revealed who he was, everybody would hit the deck. Every single one of us is going to stand before God. Well, I say stand before First, we're going to fall before God. Seeing it, I, I just sense to get a little. Jesus gives them a little glimpse, a little touch with a couple of words, and they hit the deck. He simply declares who he is, and this huge crowd fold like a pack of cards. Now, does this look like somebody who's been overwhelmed by a more powerful enemy? This is what John wants us to see here. He's wanting to draw this out. Don't get it twisted. Yes, there was pain and suffering. And Jesus did weep and, and, and he did sweat, uh, sweat as, as if drip, drips of blood. That, that all was there. We're not taken away from that. But John is really wanting to highlight, don't forget for a moment who is in charge here. Jesus is in ultimate control. Remember what Jesus said back in uh, chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. He says, for this reason, I don't know if I've got it here. I have, praise God. For this reason, the Father loves me Because I lay down my life, and I, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Who is in control here? Jesus, in ultimate control. Not caught off guard. He's at this point. Why? Because he had determined that he would be there at this point. This was now his time. Let's, and it's easy to, it could be easy to forget that, just in the same way it can be easy in our own lives, can't it, when we find ourselves in situations that look scary, they look like, actually, where is God in all this? Where is, what is, maybe God's kind of not quite in control here. John wants us to see that Jesus is God and therefore in complete control of all things at all times. What an encouragement for all of us who, who, claim Jesus as our Lord, to know that he's in control and that he's in control of every situation. No matter what situation you find yourself in today or tomorrow or whenever, he is ultimately in control and he's working out his plan and his purpose. Surely that should give us encouragement. Jesus is in complete control. What do we need to do? We need to trust him, don't we? We need to trust him. 
I suppose it's, it's one thing to have someone who's got complete control, but for some of us that might sound a bit scary. I know for my mum, and she won't mind me saying this, I've, I've said it before, that's something that she finds scary, the, the idea that somebody would have control over her or that they would have ultimate control. And for, I suppose for, for, for good reason in a sense, because it's, it, it, it's, it's a scary thing particularly, or, or not, depending on the character and nature of the person who's in control, isn't it? I mean, if you, you go to school where there's a headmaster who's a control freak and he doesn't like kids, and trust me, there are teachers who don't like children, which is, you, you know, you'd think that doesn't make sense. Teaching is a vocation, isn't it? But there are many people, obviously, it's, it's just a paycheck for them. And there are teachers who don't like children, and yet they work with children each and every day. So if you have one of those teachers who's a headmaster, he doesn't like kids, trust me, and you know that your life is going to be made hell at school. Whereas if you've got one who realizes that their job is a privilege and that they're in a privileged position and that they love children and they want to see children benefited, to have that, that person in charge can be a wonderful thing. That person understands that there's no I in team, so therefore they're going to you know, appreciate the help and, and, and expertise of their staff and what have you. You've heard of the saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that normally is true of every man, isn't it? But there's, there's good news, both for the disciples who were standing next to Jesus and for any disciples here today. Because not only has he got ultimate control and in ultimate control, he's not a tyrant. We don't need to fear the fact that Jesus has complete control. And the reason that is because he's the ultimate saviour. Verses 7 to 9. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Probably quite hesitantly after they've just got back off, off the floor, and he's, you know, from what he said before, probably a bit hesitant this time. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost none, not one. And we've already seen evidence of Jesus being the ultimate saviour by putting himself before the disciples, isn't it? And in between. So he's in between the enemy and his disciples. That's, that's the saviour that we serve. He stands before the enemy, protecting us. We've already seen evidence of this. And just like he said back in chapter 10, he's the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. I think there's an intentional connection between Jesus knocking them off their feet with his words, just warning them of his power. There's an element of warning in that. And then asking them twice who they've come for. It's like he's saying, he's wanting to remind them why they're there. You are here for me. You're not here for my disciples. And in that, he is saving them. He's protecting them physically, but also, we know, eternally. There's a, 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 a double element to that. Taking the heat off the disciples. What a saviour. He's selfless and, 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 and wanting to protect. So powerful and yet so wise. Because what happens? The disciples are not taken at this point. We know they, they end up fleeing. In a moment where Jesus could easily be expected to just think about himself, he demonstrates to his disciples sacrificial love. God truly does not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we can 
bear. And Jesus determined at this moment for them to be caught would have been more than they can bear. That's hard for us, isn't it? Sometimes I think because we think, okay, Lord, what you think I can bear is not necessarily what I think I can bear. Um, or we have the issue of, Lord, I trust that you're in complete control and I trust you with my life, but I'm also aware that that also means that not necessarily things are always going to be as I want it to be. You can be in complete control and still allow me to become ill. You can be in complete control and still allow me to lose a loved one. You can be in complete control and still allow me to suffer. And we know that's part of being a believer, isn't it? And part of trusting him. Jesus has, has secured his disciples' release, which is given, which given the circumstances you think about is a miracle. It's actually a miracle that they got away because you know for a fact that they're with Jesus. They, they came intending. They're coming, they're coming with weapons. They were clearly expecting some resistance. Maybe they were thinking he was going to have you know, a lot more followers with him. And yet here's Jesus. Not, he's, not, he's not hiding. All the disciples have scarpered. They've headed out. They've run for the hills, except for John, whose account we're reading, and also Peter, good old Peter, the one who gets it completely right, bang on the money. Oh my gosh, Peter, you're amazing. Or he gets it completely wrong. But at least he gets it. I mean, at least he, go, he goes in. He makes a lot of mistakes, but he also comes out with some amazing truths and gets it on the money. Not this time, though. Maybe, maybe Peter's like super gassed because, you know, here he is with uh, Jesus and um, he's seen Jesus floor everybody with a couple of words and maybe he's just like, yeah, you know what, this, this is it's, it's my time to shine now. Let's look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. John is the only one who mentions the, the name of the servant. The others mention the event, but he only, he's the only one who mentions the name. Now, be honest now. If this was a movie, and I know for, I can speak for me as a man, and probably most of the men now, most of the men now are like cheering at this point. And actually, we've been willing, we've been wanting. If you were watching this, if this was a video you were watching... And you're seeing this happen to Jesus and you've got his disciples there. You're wanting them to, to draw, even if they only take out 50 men, you'll be happy. Go out in a blaze. This is the, this is the, free, this is the 300 moment, isn't it? This is Jerusalem. That's what you're wanting to see. You'd be happy to see that. Because the reality is we don't want to see our heroes suffer and we certainly don't want them to die. But if they are going to die, then they need to go out in a blaze of bullets. Because otherwise it just seems weak to us, doesn't it? It just seems like this is not strength. Yet how, how, how different God is. There is going to be a time for that. There's going to be a time where God will clearly flex his muscles and everybody will feel the effects of it. Yet this was not that time. We, like Peter, think that we maybe know better than Jesus. Or maybe we think Jesus needs our help. Many times you've been in that situation. Now, Lord, let me just, I know what you need. I've been praying for ages, Lord, about this situation. And clearly, obviously, you might be a bit busy or maybe you haven't seen this aspect of it. What I need to do now is I need to go out and I need to, Mark, what you need to do is sit your backside down and trust God. 
to wait. You need to stand and watch what he is doing. Keep your eyes on him. Follow his lead. Listen out for him to tell you what to do next. Yes, there's a time for action, but now is not that time. Truth is that Jesus is in complete control. He doesn't need Peter's help, believe it or not. In fact, Jesus says to Peter in Matthew's account, I don't know if I've got it, it's about there. Matthew 26, 52 to 53 says, it's in, in, in Matthew is what he, he said to him at, at, at this point, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword, Peter. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and that he will at once send me more than, you know, I mean, 12 legions of angels. Jesus, imagine that. That's why he's also the ultimate hero because at any point of his life, he could have called the father and said, you know what, Pops, I know we've got this plan and that, but right about now, these guys, you see how they're dissing me now. Just send one of them. Just send Michael and obliterate the whole land. He could have done that. You know, if it was me, I wouldn't have lasted a minute because I, I go on like that and I don't have the power to back it up. But if, if I, had, if I if knowingly have, when you knowingly have the power to do something and yet you resist using that, that's a whole nother level of humility. Whole nother level. And we're not just talking about for a minute or for a day. 33 years on earth. Resisting that temptation. He's reminding Peter, look, Peter, you and your little sword, what really, what are you going to do? Come on now. If I wanted to, I would blink and everybody would be finished. If I took my eyes off for a moment, all of you would drop. It shows you, doesn't it, that Peter's as close as he is to Jesus, he still doesn't really understand who Jesus is. And isn't that a constant struggle for us? As much as we walk with the Lord, we still forget who he is. And evidence of that is when we find ourselves in situations, we panic and we try and do stuff in our own strength. Because if we knew who he was, he's, oh, he's got, I need to just stand here and watch Jesus do what he's doing. Trust him. Keep my eyes on him. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the other accounts, we, we've got Jesus saying to the disciples, just stay up and pray. Jesus is praying, he's, 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 as he's always doing, praying, trusting in the Father, completely dependent on the Father. And the disciples are mash up. Probably rightly so. They're probably literally busted and they're bucking and they're unable to stay awake. How many times have we been in that situation where actually we would have saved ourselves a whole heap of problems if we had prayed? But we've fallen asleep or we've done something else. Possibly he might have been more in tune with Jesus if he had stayed up and prayed. We would at times do much better to be on our knees praying about situations than we would to act in our own strength. There's definitely a time to act. Definitely a time to act. But the more that we're used to the Father's voice, the more that we're going to be in tune with him. We see here in this last verse that Jesus was completely surrendered to the Father's will. He was on a mission from the Father. And he wouldn't let anything distract him from what the Father had for him to do. Verse 10. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Can you see for Jesus, anything that is going to get in the way of what his Father has called him to do, anything that's going to get in the way of this mission is anathema 
He's fixed and focused. There's no way he's going to allow anything to stop him from fulfilling this mission. He's completely and utterly, utterly surrendered to the Father's will. And my question is for us, what, what about us? What about you? Are you surrendered to his will? This, is not, this was Jesus' cup. This is, is what Jesus' portion was. But what's his will and purpose for your, your life? We know what the general will is, don't we? We know he's called us to make disciples, for instance. That's not a kind of a, that's for some, it's not for others, that's for all of us. Is that something you're running towards? Is that something you're embracing? Are you, do, you, do you embrace the Father's will? Or actually, is it something that you're constantly ducking and diving and trying to get away from? I think Jesus sets out the example, doesn't he? That it, it, the, the, the pattern of suffering for great glory. And the reality is, is, as believers, the stuff we struggle with, particularly in God's will, is, is stuff that's going to be difficult or stuff that's going to cause us suffering. You know, there's other things that, we, that the Lord calls us to do we're, we're quite happy to do. It's going to benefit us. We, like, we love the blessing part, don't we? That's why we've got, you know, quite happy to put those, in our, those scriptures in our, our fridges. We like that part, but it's the suffering aspect we don't really like. And yet, actually, glory comes from suffering. Character building comes from suffering. Getting to know Jesus in a deeper way, in a closer way, comes actually through suffering. And it's not always necessarily physical. It's, there's a broad scope to that, what that suffering is like. John is encouraging us, highlighting to us that Jesus is the ultimate saviour who's in ultimate control. And therefore, he deserves our ultimate and complete and total trust. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that the entrance of it brings light, Lord, and that you give understanding to us who are simple. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you, regardless of what the situation may look like. Lord, would you help us to really walk by faith? We say it, you know, we live by faith, not by sight, but the reality is I definitely know in my own heart, Lord, so often I'm living by sight. I'm going by what I see. If it looks good, if it looks like we're winning, that's great. It looks like you're with me, I'm happy. But Lord, if I can't see how you're going to catch me, Lord, if I can't see how you're going to work this out, if I can't work it out in my own mind, Lord, then I, I, I tend to doubt and lose faith. But Lord Jesus, you've shown us so clearly here that you are in complete control and that you're the ultimate saviour. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you had your face fixed like flint. From before the foundation of the world, you were committed to going to the cross. And because of that, we can know peace, we can know forgiveness, we can know salvation. There's no glory without the cross. Thank you that you were committed to suffering for us and you did that because you love us what manner of love is this Lord you're so good Father I pray that you'd open our eyes to see all that you have done for us all that you've accomplished on the cross 
And Lord, that far from us running away from your will and purpose, Lord, that we would embrace it. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the comforter who is committed to making us more and more like Jesus. Father, I pray for any who are here today that don't know you, Lord, that don't know that judgment is coming and none of us will escape it. And you have to judge because you are a good God. You can't allow sin to go unpunished. Lord, thank you that you have provided a way out. Thank you that you've provided a savior who went to the cross for us, who took the punishment for all sin for us. If we would only turn to him and put our faith and trust in him and his finished perfect, perfect work on the cross. Lord, I pray for any who don't know you here today, Lord, that they wouldn't leave this place feeling confident in their sinfulness, feeling confident about their future without you. Lord, would you arrest them? Lord, would you help them to see their desperate, desperate need for you? Would you open the eyes of their understanding? Lord, would you help them to see that there's no truth outside of you? Lord, there's no hope outside of you. Father, we pray that even today that you would plant a seed in their hearts, Lord, that they would come to know you. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. Thank you for the cross. Horrific and wonderful at the same time. Please, Lord, would you help us to trust you, trust that you're with us and that you're God and that you're in control. Be glorified today and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.